Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on ideas, policies and events that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Jonathan Hackenbreusch and I'm the research assistant to Mark Leonard, who is exceptionally unable to record this podcast this week, but I'll do my best to imitate the master and um, make up for his absence. And today we will talk about Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, and the scandal that's been shaking the UK and, in fact, the entire world over the last week. So here with me to make sense of all that is Professor John Norton, um, Senior Research Fellow at Wolfson College at the, University, at the University of Cambridge, and who is a columnist, a regular con contributor to The Observer, um, was part of the, um, of the three media outlets that broke the story. Um, why don't you, John, tell us first... Um, about how this, how this came about. Um, Carol Cadwallader, uh, who is, who is uh, one of your colleagues um, at The Observer, had been working on this for, for over a year. Well, for, for some time, I mean, more than a year, uh, we have been, I have been and my colleagues have been interested in the strange kind of powers that some of the digital uh, corporations have acquired. Uh, and initially... Carol, uh, who's a terrific reporter, um, she started to uh, examine what role, if, if any, these companies had played in the big political earthquakes of 2016, which were Brexit and, um, and the election of Donald Trump. And over a period of time, it, it became clear that um, things had happened that were hard to explain. Um, And they definitely involved some use of, of data, of personal data. And also that the, the big figure in this, the big entity in this, seemed to be a mysterious outfit called Cambridge Analytica. And Cambridge Analytica is a very opaque company. Um, it's based here in London, uh, and it, it's owned by, uh, I think, largely owned by, by Robert Mercer, who's an American right-wing billionaire, um, and what was lacking was any sort of direct connection between the suspicions that some journalists had about the role of Cambridge Analytica and sort of hard evidence that there was a connection because, of course, they regularly denied almost every allegation that was, was put to them. And what happened was that, in the end, um, Carol Cadwallader managed to persuade um, the programmer who had written some of the code which exploited the, the data that had been stolen from, from Facebook or had been abstracted from Facebook, let's put it like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he seemed to be um, overcome with some kind of remorse about what he had done, and she persuaded him to talk. And he was then able to provide a large trove of email trails and other evidence, which meant that we had a story. So when uh, was that? that a well, ago? A, a few. Well, it, uh, quite a while ago, in fact. But getting getting a whistleblower in that position to talk is not easy. Right. And uh, and whistleblowers are always naturally nervous and and so on. So it, it took quite a lot of determination and and persistence. And then the, the idea was that w w that the newspaper would collaborate with some other partners who would do bits of the story, and partly in order to. Uh, to make sure that th this this was not just confined to a, a British story, um, 
but also that it wasn't just confined to one particular kind of medium, which is the newspapers. Um, and Channel 4 News um, uh, bought into this, and they, they, they contributed something really dramatic to it, which was that they, 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 um, they did a serious piece of undercover reporting and filming of conversations with the top executives of this firm, Cambridge Analytica, um, where they, they, they set up, a, in a sense, a kind of a sting, where they had uh, somebody who was purported to be uh, an Asian uh, possible client, potential client for Cambridge Analytica. And over a process of some, some time, perhaps months, I think, um, they managed to set up a set of meetings which were secretly recorded in which um, the Cambridge Analytica folks you know, made a pitch for business to this guy. And in the process, they said all kinds of things, careless things. I think that they would much prefer not to have revealed, and they are, had been revealed, and then the thing exploded. So what's your... Because you're saying that the bigger story is not Cambridge Analytica, but what is well, the bigger story behind this? What I work on right. in my academic work is, is the, the long-term impact of the Internet for society. Um, and from that context... Um, the Cambridge Analytica story is extremely interesting and, and you know, quite dramatic and so on. But it's not the real story. Right. Um, Cambridge Analytica, when you, when you look at it in the hard light of what we now know, is actually a pretty conventional sort of outfit. We've, we've had these black operation um, type of psychological warfare operations before in, in, in democratic politics. Um, and in some respects... <laughs> When I was watching the Channel 4 broadcast, I was thinking, you know what, these Cambridge Analytica guys, they, they, they're kind of smoother, um, but they remind me of the Watergate burglars or the people who, who ran uh, that famous uh, Operation uh, Creep, which was the committee to re-elect the president, i.e. re-elect uh, Richard Nixon. So in some senses, we've had those kind of dirty tricks operations in politics for a long time. The only thing that made Cambridge Analytica a bit different I think, was that they, they, they added this allegedly high-tech bit, which is that we, we do data as well. We don't just tell lies and we don't just, you know, um, inter- interfere in all kinds of ways in order to undermine um, our, our clients' opponents in, in, in elections and so on. We, we do this special bit also, um, which is the, the data stuff. Now, in that sense, it's an old story, except with the added data bit. Um, when, when it comes down to it, Cambridge Analytica did all kinds, of, uh, all kinds of things. But the point is, for me, that they wouldn't have been able to do any of that. At least they wouldn't have, to be, they wouldn't have been able to do the data part of it without, if Facebook didn't exist. And that's the bigger story for me. Which is, and what, what has happened since the story broke um, is that Facebook uh, has been trying to portray itself as a victim. You know, we're just this poor giant corporation and these unscrupulous people have exploited us. Mark Zuckerberg, the chief executive, finally broke cover. He came out from under the duvet under which he had been hiding. And he gave interviews to, to various media the other day. And the He's point, saying, well, it's, that's terrible. Right? It is, it's terrible and it'd be sorry and, and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And if you have a long memory, like I have, then... You think there's a long list of this stuff because I, I think one of the one of the tech sites, TechCrunch perhaps, did a, a list of all the screw-ups that, that with with data and other things that Facebook have done in the last five 
perhaps seven years. And what you hear in each case, Zuckerberg has the same story. The story is, oh, we're really sorry. It, it shouldn't have happened. Um, and we're going to learn from it, and we're going to be better next. I'm beginning to think that he sounds like one of these alcoholics who is constantly having to apologize for what he's done under the influence of drink, and he's promising he's going to do better next time. And in the current round of crisis, this is the same story. Now, if you wanted to translate that into, into something that um, the average person might, might, might appreciate, what Facebook is actually like is the owner of a very expensive and posh house in Mayfair who puts all of the valuables in the house out on the street with a notice saying, uh, please, please take what you want. Um, but you have to adhere to one condition, which is if you take something... If you take one of these things, you can't sell it to anybody else. Right, that's what he says. Um, that's what it's like. That's what they're actually saying. Um, and now, then they say they're sorry. And they, and they were very sorry that these oh, wicked people came and, and took that stuff, and then they sold it to some unscrupulous character somewhere else. Um, there's only one problem with that, which is the valuables in question do not belong to him. Right. They don't belong to the owner of the house. They belong to us, you and me. And that's, the, that's, the, that's what's actually going on, and that's what's happened. And to watch the sort of corporate spin, uh, the, the sanctimonious cant that we're getting from the corporation now uh, is kind of revolting in a way. But it's what corporations do. And is any of that going to change? Because now, of course, with the big scandal, people feel like you know, now maybe now they're going to change something. The pressure on Facebook is, is getting stronger. Is, is higher, is getting higher. Um. Look, Facebook is, I said, it's a bit like an alcoholic. Right. Um, Facebook can't change. <laughs> it can't change can't because get it off the, alcohol. But the, it, the alcohol that it has, as it were, is, is data. In, inside, came, inside Facebook's corporate DNA, um, there's an addiction to data. That's what it does. It sucks up data and it monetizes it um, for advertising purposes. That's what it does. And if, if it doesn't do that, <laughs> it has no other reason for being. Uh, so to, to, it, to require that Facebook should change is a bit like saying to BP or to Exxon, look, you have to stop. You, have to, you just have to get out of oil and gas. Okay. It makes no sense. So in a sense, Facebook cannot change. What it, what it will do and what it will continue to, to try and do is to persuade the world that actually it has reformed and that it's okay. Um, but unfortunately, it can't, because what it does is it, it's, it sucks up data and it monetizes it. And in order to suck up the data, it has to have engagement, it has to have people using it all the time and using it for longer, if possible, and so on. And um, that's going to go on. But there is, there is rehab programs and care programs for alcoholics. Um, so is, is the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation from the European Union, can, can that be any cure? Well, the, the interesting thing about the GDPR is that it, it's almost like we're about to, from May onwards, we're going to, have, we're going to start on a huge experiment to see whether a colossal industry that's been built on the basis of exploiting user data without real consent uh, whether that can, whether this, this will change or not. I mean, at one level, it looks like an existential threat to some of these kind of activities. Mm. Um, whether it turns out to be an existential threat depends, for example, among other things, on the, on the determination of data regulators and the resources that they have. Because one of the most troubling things about the Cambridge Analytica story 
is, is the way in which the United, United Kingdom's information commissioner um, has been unable to get a warrant in order to, to get in and see what's on the servers of Cambridge Analytica. Um, she, she doesn't have the staff and she doesn't have the resources and in some cases she doesn't yet have the legal powers that she would need to police this sort of operation. So whether the GDPR has the effect that some people think it will have depends partly on the resources that are given to data protection authorities throughout Europe. Sure, and, and so what, what is going to change with the GDPR? Because as you said, it's going to enter into force in May. And then, um, well, the, the GDPR, changes? among other things, um, imposes on corporations um, obligations that they have to meet in relation to, for example, revealing to um, data subjects, that's you and me, what's been done with their data. Um, and until now, keeping, keeping it secret what corporations do with our data has been their raison d'etre. Um, they have to come clean in some way, and also they have to be prepared to provide us with it on demand and so on. Uh, now, I don't know... I don't know how that works out for, for, for a corporation as big as Facebook or a corporation as big as Google. We just don't know now. We're going to find out. So the next year is going to be really interesting. But it doesn't start until May, so we have to just have patience until then. A few more months. Well, fascinating, because the, the bigger question for us, of course, at, at the European Council on Foreign Relations is, what does this all mean for Europe? And, and are we, um, with our values, at least, at least in continental Europe, given Brexit, um, uh, and, and our emphasis on, on uh, civil liberties and, well, especially data protection. Um, the question is, um, are we going to have to or are we moving into a direction of building a European Internet fragmented from the other parts of the Internet in, in the world? China is doing that, is forcefully doing that, not just with the firewall, but um, with its surveillance and um, you know, laws that, that uh, in the internet and, and capabilities that, that just um, apply to when, when you're a chi- in, in China or a Chinese citizen. Um, so is there going to be a European internet? It's hard, it's hard to say that it would be, as it were, just a European internet. What's already clear is that some of the operations of these global companies, which they once upon a time dreamed of being universal across across the whole world in a kind of, kind of flat way, they're, they're having now to adjust to the fact that there is uh, a block of countries where they can't do what they like and they have to play by those, by those rules. Now, um, the best ca- case we have for that at the moment is, is the so-called right to be forgotten, which is a decision by the European court uh, to, to, that, that European citizens have a right to have, their, to have material, online material that, to which they object delisted from the search engine, from search engine results. Um, that's very interesting in all kinds of ways. One of them is that it, it, it effectively says that there's a new kind of power loose in the world because um, it, the right to be forgotten is not a right to be forgotten. It's a right not to be found by the search engines, search engine of a particular corporation. Now, what... States. So, a European... Within, within Europe. Yes. Okay, right, okay. Right. Um, now, the, the point about that is that in a networked world, if you can't be found by the dominant search engine, then effectively you cease to exist, right? So, in a sense, we have sort of given to a private corporation the right to disappear people. That used to be a, a speciality of people like Stalin. Okay, and it's really weird because 
Um, and not only that, but we have then, having, having given European citizens that right, we have uh, then subcontracted the operation of that process to this private company. Because it's Google you petition if you want your data not to be listed. Right, right. And it's Google that makes the decision. Now, in most kinds of areas of life, we'd say that kind of decision ought to be made by a court. It's not. It's going to be made by a private corporation. So, and it's not a European company. Yes, so. but, but, but the interesting thing is that, of course, Google, although it protested loudly and was furious about the decision that it didn't expect, it has, in the end, uh, kowtowed. It has to, because if it doesn't, it gets fined and the rest of it. And so, um, in that particular respect, one aspect of, of the operation of the web, which, which is the search engine space, is already different in Europe from the way it is, what, what it is in the United States. Um, so, whether that amounts in the long run to, to a European internet or not, we don't know. But that, this is the kind of indication of where it, how it might go. Authoritarian states and non-democratic states have no problem with this. That's why the Chinese are so effective at controlling the internet, and, and they have a big enough internet to be entirely self-sufficient. The Russians are heading in that direction. The Iranians are heading in that direction. So I think we're going to see some fragmentation um, and it might, it might turn, you know, in 10, 15 years' time, you might look back and say, well, there was once upon a time there was a global internet, and now there's a whole set of them. And is, is there, there, there are some com- countries that are thinking about um, adopting European regulations on, on the topic. So could, could, you know, could there be some kind of, you know, could Europe be a digital regulatory superpower? Yeah, the, the, I mean, a good analogy might be the GSM standard for mobile phones, mm-hmm. because that was a European initiative. In that case, it was supported by the European uh, Commission, uh, and it was it was a very far-sighted and effective um, measure to to devise um, a technical standard for for um, for mobile telephony. Um, it could be that other countries which are worried about uh, the privacy of their citizens. Um, having seen the European Union do the heavy lifting to get the GDPR agreed and, and working, that they might say, well, actually, you know, they've done the work. Let's just take what they've done. So in that sense, it might have a bigger impact outside of Europe than we, than we expect. We know it will have an impact in Europe. It might actually be very productive elsewhere as well. But that, again, we just have to wait and see. We don't yeah. And then you're, you're the author of the, um, you're the Martin Luther of the digital age. <laughs> um, you're the author of the 95 theses uh, about technology. Um, and some of your theses are, and I'm wondering how that goes together, because you said the surveillance is the business model of the Internet. And, of course, my first question is, what, how, how do you mean so? And I can imagine a little bit. That, that's, that's a quote from Bruce Nara, who's a famous uh, Internet security guru, um, and he, he said it as a provocation some years ago. Um, but w- w- what he was referring to is the fact that um, digital technology is very special. It's quite, it has really special properties that are different from other kinds of technologies. And one of them is its capacity for comprehensive surveillance. Mm. Now, when, when we said that in the beginning, we thought surveillance means states, it means Orwell, it means all that kind of stuff. But what we didn't anticipate, and of course that has been taken up, that's why the Snowden revelations in 2013 revealed the extent and the power of the surveillance capabilities of the technology as harnessed by states. Mm. What people didn't realise until, in a sense, much later and certainly too late, which is that surveillance is also the business model for two of the giant corporations in the digital world. They are Google and Facebook, because what they do is they surveil us 
their users. They, they provide free and valuable services very effectively and efficiently to users. But in return, the deal is that users allow them to take all of their data and their data trails to monitor everything they do on the net, um, everything, and package it in ways to create user profiles and other things which enable advertisers to target, supposedly to target um, advertisements accurately at, at, at people. That's the, the business model for that now has a name. It didn't have it at the beginning. We call it surveillance capitalism, because that's what it is. It's hoovering up data and, uh, by, by, by surveilling people um, and then selling versions of the data. Um, so you can paint a target on every user's back. So that makes you wonder how much is there going to be, how, mu how much can Europe be successful in taming them if, if that's the very business model? Well, that's, that's where the GDPR might help. Right. Because they only can do that at the moment by pretending that our data is of no value to us. It is, of course, of value because we know that they have created huge fortunes on the basis of using it. So the GDPR says, hang on. Uh, now, it doesn't go far enough, in my opinion, but, but nevertheless, um, it, it's the first step in saying, hang on, uh, citizens' data uh, has a value and it has an importance that's not been recognized in the very one-sided uh, license agreements that, that we, we click on in order to use Google or go use Facebook or whatever. We agree to all kinds of stuff. We would never agree to in real life in a paper contract. So if somebody came to you in the street, a corporation came to you in the street and said, I'm going to give you some free services and here's what you have to sign, and you read it, uh, then you'd say, hang on. You know. And there's been some wonderful experiments in that. For example, a security company called F-Secure did an experiment in London mm -hmm. in a place full of tourists where they offered free high-speed Wi-Fi in return for acceptance of the terms and conditions. And one of the terms and conditions was, we, I give you the right um, to my firstborn child. And 300 oh, wow. people, I think it was 300 people signed it without thinking. Okay. Now that, the, most end-user license agreements are like that. And that was on paper. That was on paper, yeah. That was even a click. So, no, that was a click, sorry. No, it was it was a, a click, click. Yeah. So, but that's the point. If it's on paper, you wouldn't take it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because you say, hey, hang on, hang on. Um, but, but we just click on it. We don't read the terms and conditions. We don't read and, and so those, those end-user license agreements are totally skewed. Um, and they have to be reformed. And I think one of the impacts of the, of the GDPR might be, indeed, a gradual reform of these skewed uh, arrangements. Well, there's some, some hope for that uh, on that front. But... Um, you're also, if I look at thesis 14, saying that surveillance capitalism is not sustainable. Is that in the long run? And, and yeah. Why is that? And is that Sus reason for Surveillance capitalism involves um, capturing people's attention and selling it to advertisers. Okay. Um, and uh, that means you have to, in, in order to keep growing, if you're a capitalist enterprise, you have to keep growing. You have to capture more and more of the attention. Now, Facebook, for example, is already doing really well on that because we th I think that the average time the average user spends on Facebook is 50 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Now, that's fine. And, and Facebook's aspiration would be probably to get us to three hours or four, three and a half hours or four hours a day on Facebook. Okay. Well, because that, that, that's, that's the only way they can increase the, the thing they monetize. Um, now, the only problem with that is that actually only 24 hours in the day. And some of it has to be spent sleeping and some of it has to be spelt to be spent uh, eating, and some of it has to be spent traveling or doing something else. Um, so it's a, it's a finite amount. 
So <laughs> one day, they can't have 24 hours of our attention. So it, it's self-limiting in the long run. And also, in order to, as, as, they get more, as it gets more desperate, then they will use more and more objectionable and intrusive ways of capturing our attention. And in the end, people will revolt. The history of advertising has been always like that. It's happened in, 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 in the last 100, 100 plus years of advertising. We've seen this. There's, sorry, yeah, the, there's a wonderful history of it by Tim Wu called The Attention Merchants, um, which shows that, that we've had these cycles where advertising becomes more and more intrusive, people revolt, and then it changes and there's a different... That this is going to happen. And that's why I don't think this business model is actually sustainable in the long run. You can't do it. And that's what gets us back to, to you know, this, the current story about, about yeah. Facebook and, and Cambridge Analytica. And, um, so that might be the beginning of, of the revolt? Or? Well, it could be. And it certainly could be, could be the beginning of a realisation of what's going on. Because public realisation of this stuff is not very widespread, I don't think. Most Facebook users... Well, I, you know, I don't know, but 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 my hunch is that everybody probably knows kind of that somehow they've been exploited. But on the other hand, you know, look at those pictures of my kids, or of my my family, or look at that person having that nice holiday, and I'm not having it. Oh, I, don't, I just just don't know. I'm not a big user of social media, so. Um, but the the point is that, you know, in the end, I think this is finite. And I guess the question is, when when will people actually care? Because are they going to care? I don't know. The scandal, well, what, what makes them actually care? My, my colleague David Runciman, the political theorist, has a great—he has a great question, which he's asked for a long time. Which of, of anything that happens that's controversial, he—he he, his question is: Is this a scandal or a crisis? Um, a scandal is something that creates a lot of noise and shocks people, and there's a lot of newspaper coverage and TV coverage and so on. Um, but actually, in the end. Nothing much happens. And we have scandals all the time in democracies. Okay? So a crisis is where something fundamentally changes as a result. And the big question about when, when any of these things arises, is this the crisis that will lead to change? I would say we don't know. I mean, it, for example, if, if it turns out that a large number of people decide, oh, to hell with it, I'm going to delete my Facebook account. Which is what WhatsApp, the WhatsApp founder... Yes. Yeah, it was a bit rich coming from a guy who made $19 billion from selling his company to Facebook. But anyway, um, but but, but the the point is that there are lots of that stuff at the moment. But I think my hunch is that it's just folks inside our liberal tech bubble that are excited about this. But, you know, the average user of Facebook probably hasn't even heard of Cambridge Analytica. There's not interested. So who knows? But but if, if it happened that a significant number of people started to say, you know what? I think I've had enough, and just delete their account, then that would start something different. That would, that would pitch Facebook into the kind of my, what happened to MySpace. You know, the kind of, but, you know, there are 2.2 billion users of Facebook at the moment. That's a lot of people to make that decision. And that's much, yeah. Well, that's all fascinating stuff. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Our last... Uh, part of the podcast is our bookshelf segment each, uh, in each uh, podcast. Uh, so what's on your bookshelf now? What, what are you reading? Um, the, the most interesting book I've read in the last m- few weeks is um, a book by a, f- a well-known human rights lawyer uh, called Philip Sand. It's called East West Street. And it's about what happened to his family and some and a pair of very distinguished uh, lawyers 
over the period from the 1920s onwards. Uh, it's a really wonderful story of, of, what, of the horrors that people have lived through in Europe. And it's not quite in my lifetime because I'm not that old, but, you know, it's all within living memory. It's an extraordinary story. It's, it's about where human rights law came from. Uh, and it's about... And the focus of it is the, the, the Nuremberg trials um, and the legal doctrine that was used to try the Nazis and how that came from. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's interesting. When we'll put up a, a link or reference on our website. It just, and just so about uh, my recommendations, I'm going to recommend the 95 Theses of, about Technology by John Norton. You'll find them on, online and we'll put up a link. And um, also Mark Leonard's February, February column uh, on Project Syndicate, um, the title China's Big Data, Big Brother, um, where he talks about the Communist Party of China, um, China's decision to abolish presidential term limits and um, its success in building a big data-enhanced uh, uh, dictatorship of the 21st century. If you like this podcast or any of the podcasts by Mark Leonard, then we need your review. Please head straight to iTunes review page or SoundCloud review page and give us a nice review. And if you send an email to mark.leonard at ecfr.eu, linking your, your comment or copying your, your review, um, then you might be eligible, you are eligible, in fact, for one of the last remaining end-of-the-world mugs that we still have here um, and that say the end of the world is near, but the coffee is hot. Um, so don't miss out on that. For now, from Professor John Norton and myself, Jonathan Hackenbrosch, it's goodbye. The editor of this podcast is Katerina Botel-Atinavo. <laughs> <laughs>